Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today we're having another special episode. Yay! <laughs> we have our favorite Ajam dream team. We have Dr. Amy Malik, who is assistant professor at the College of Charleston, Dr. Neda Makwule, assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and today we're also interviewing Dr. Nargis Bajorli, who is the assistant professor of Middle Eastern Studies at SIAS at Johns Hopkins University. Hello, everybody. Hi. Okay, I've decided I can never do another podcast without all y'all, so <laughs> you're, you're in it for good now. Yeah, there's nothing we can do. But on a more serious note, we're here to talk to Nargis about her recently published and critically acclaimed book, Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. That's published by Stanford University Press, and it just came out this year in 2019. And so for this book, now I guess you're drawing upon your anthropological and ethnographic work where you spent over 10 years interviewing men from Iran's Revolutionary Guard, Ansara Hezbollah, and uh, Basij paramilitary organizations. So can you just, first of all, before we even get into the, the meat of the book and your arguments, how did you conduct this research and who are these groups and who are your subjects that you interviewed? So I actually decided late in 2007 or 8 that I was really interested in thinking about how the Islamic Republic was going to keep its revolution alive because the majority of Iran's population was under the age of 30 at the time. So this was really sort of going to be a new massive generation that they had to, in effect, if they wanted to keep their system alive, get them to buy into this system. And so one of the ways that they were doing that was via media. And at the time, Masoud Ehnamaki, um, who used to be one of the founders of Ansar Hezbollah and actually was in charge of suppressing the student uprisings in, in 1999 in the University of Tehran's dormitory, he switched from doing that sort of work into becoming a filmmaker. And one of his films became the most a successful film in Iran's box office history in 2007, The Outcasts. And he, I had been following his blog and he was talking about wanting to create new film studios for younger Basijis to make this new kind of work. And so I decided this was what I wanted to be working on. But then, you know, I knew that I didn't want to actually just do interviews because like state elites the world over, they would stick to sort of the, the messaging, you know, the formal responses. What I was really most interested in was trying to figure out and trying to spend long periods of time with them in their workspaces as they made these films from start to finish, as they were sort of in their production meetings, talking about the fundings for the films, where was this funding coming from? And, you know, what were the considerations they had in mind for their productions? And uh, really, most importantly, what were the stories that they thought were important to tell? Because for me, what that began to indicate was how were they defining the Islamic Republic for the, what was their vision for it? And who was their audience? So then what I actually ended up looking at was the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij have a lot of media and cultural producers in their ranks. Uh, they have since the very beginning days of the revolution. So what I was interested in is looking at both the formal cultural centers that are pro-regime and then also looking at a bunch of the ad hoc studios that have been developed in Iran and trying to understand the relationship between all of these spaces. But for me, there has been so much great scholarship done on sort of more independent media in Iran or media of resistance in Iran. 
But the state, they're the biggest producers of media content in the country. And so I really wanted to understand what were they trying to do? And particularly because the Revolutionary Guard embassies are so financially wealthy in Iran today, they they really have not only been pouring a lot of money into their productions, but they also see this as sort of a front line in the larger battles that they are fighting in society. So for our listeners who are not necessarily familiar with the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij. Can you just refresh our memories to who are these organizations, who are the people who are in them, and why are they important to the contemporary political scene in Iran? Okay, so a really quick sort of roundup of that. When the revolution succeeds and Ayatollah Khomeini comes back into Iran in February of 1979, he is afraid that the Artish, the formal military, which Iran's military was one of the strongest in the Middle East because uh, the Shah was such good friends with the United States. And so Iran received a lot of military aid and uh, also purchased a lot of U.S. weaponry. So when Khomeini came back to Iran, he was afraid that the Artish would stage a coup against him. And so he created the Revolutionary Guard as an entity that would, in effect, protect the revolution from within. And so when uprisings began against the central government or this, you know, central sort of formation of this new state in Iran in the Kurdish and Turkoman region of the countries, they sent the Revolutionary Guard there first to to suppress those movements. And then in September of 1980, Iraq invades Iran. So the Artish, the military goes to to defend the country. But by this point, Saddam Hussein's military is being supported quite heavily by the U.S. and Western powers. And so Iran needed to figure out a way to fight this sort of incursion into the country. And so the decision is made for the Revolutionary Guards to also go down to the south and to begin to fight. This war obviously drags on for eight years. And during this eight year war between Iran and Iraq, the Revolutionary Guard ends up developing into a military organization that is almost parallel in structure to the formal military. So it has an arm, it has a ground force, a naval force, an air force. Saddam Hussein was getting all this weaponry from the West and was very uh, well equipped. The Iranians were not well equipped. They were sanctioned at this time. It was really expensive for them to buy weapons. They had to buy it on the black market. And so one of their strategies became, because it's just a larger country and with a larger population, that they would inundate the front lines with soldiers. And so they created the Basij organization, which sort of comes out of this Komite framework anyways that was around during the revolutionary period. And the Basij was meant particularly to recruit people to go into the war. And so one of the main problems of the Islamic Republic after the war becomes how to demobilize the Basij. And this sort of becomes a a greater issue that that they're still sort of dealing with today. What do you explore in your book? You're obviously trying to discuss the anxieties of power, but what are these major anxieties? You mentioned that you have hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of people who are part of these organizations that seem to be a major part of the Iranian political system and the economic system. So what, what are these anxieties you're referring to? I think in order to answer that question in this sort of format, what I think is important is that for me, up until I began this project, I was really interested and I had been studying the women's movements in Iran and the students' movements in Iran. And it was when I started to sort of read more critically in graduate school. And I very early on read some of these articles by anthropologists like Laila Bulogod and Laura Nader about how we're very good at studying 
movements or communities that we empathize with and that we have a lot of sympathy towards. And although that creates a lot of very rich material, we don't know what they're fighting against. Outside of political science and even within political science, when political scientists study power, they tend to do so either very institutionally or focusing on like certain figures within either states or institutions or things like that. What I was more interested in doing, though, was to create a sort of a 3D vision of what power looks like in Iran based off of these people that I ended up gaining access to. Because what I think is important is the Revolutionary Guard, the Islamic Republic, we see them as in some ways either caricatures or completely 2D. And so when I refer to the anxieties of power, it's really about the different forms of anxieties that not only does the state of Iran and the government of the Islamic Republic have when it comes to all of this external pressure that's put on it from either the United States or sort of regional geopolitics of the area, but also that this is a system that came about through a popular revolution that completely upended the system that was there before. And so what that means is that you have a whole new generation, a whole new sector of people coming into power that did not have power before the revolution. So it's about how do these people, folks who've come into these positions of power in Iran, not only deal with the larger geopolitics of the region, but also deal with the internal social dynamics of coming into these positions of formal power when they are dealing with not having social and cultural capital because of questions of class from prior to the revolution or because of how social and cultural capital is sort of dealt in Iran, which is through the Roshan Fik intellectual communities. And that has tended to not be cast upon those who come from these very pious and lower middle class families. So for me, it was sort of untangling what it means to be in power, not just in these bigger institutions, but also for how these individuals who now find themselves in positions of power, how they sort of deal with that in an interpersonal way. If I can piggyback off of that, I would love to hear a little bit more about how anxiety ended up both in the title of your book, but also as an analytic that you turn to throughout the book. Uh, in particular, um, maybe what that adds to the conversation, particularly given what scholarship exists in the United States about Iran, what discourses are dominant here about Iran. And so what leverage does anxiety give us? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think both sets of titles for the book, both, you know, Iran Reframed and Anxieties of Power, I went back and forth with uh, with what the final title would end up being. But those two, Reframed and Anxieties, were always sort of a part of the the thinking that I had going into this project, because one is that I really wanted us to think about what does it mean to understand power in Iran and study power in this way, rather than so much of our scholarship on Iran in the post-1979 revolution has really done an amazing job looking at different areas of resistance to the state. But I wanted us to sort of think about those who are a part of the Islamic Republic and take their work, even if we may not personally agree with it, but take it seriously as something that needs to be looked at. So it's sort of thinking about how we should reframe our analysis. But also when it comes to anxieties, part of the reason I felt like I wanted that to be a part of the title of the book was that so many of the conversations throughout the years that I had with my interlocutors revolved around anxieties that they had. 
I did most of my research after the green movement in Iran uh, started and then was suppressed. And so a lot of it was about, can we even keep this system going in the face of so much opposition? There was a lot of anxiety about that. Another part of it was a lot of them, especially those in the Revolutionary Guard, were in their mid-50s at the time that I was doing my research. And so their kids were mostly in their late teens, early 20s. And their kids were constantly coming home and saying, you know, why did you guys create the system in this way? And constantly sort of critiquing their parents. And so it was a lot of personal anxiety, like how do I explain to my children this is what we fought for and why it's still worth it or it should be worth it for them to fight for this as well. And that was very anxiety producing to them. And then sort of lastly was when spending a lot of time with them, they would talk a lot or joke around with their friends a lot and their colleagues a lot about their time together at the war front um, or what their lives used to be like before. And something that would come about sometimes was how they were anxious about if they lost power, would they be relegated back to the margins of society? And I think having done research with folks who remember bringing a revolution about, so thereby remembering what their lives were like before, was really about if they lose power. And it was something that was challenged in front of their faces in 2009 on a level that they had not seen before. So if they lost it, what would happen to them and their social circle? So as a fellow anthropologist, you know I'm really interested in your methodology and your ethnographic approach, but also ethnographic writing. So one of the things that I really appreciated about the book was its legibility outside of an anthropological context. And I think it's a book that I would readily assign in my classes, right? So I have two questions. One is about this idea of long-term field work, right? It's one of the kind of hallmarks of our field, but you've really like been engaged for a 10-year period. So I'm curious about what observations you had because of that long-term engagement, what changes you saw in your interlocutors, what changes you saw in the regime itself over that period, that long-term embeddedness offered you. And then maybe I'll wait and I'll ask a second question after, but about the writing itself, yeah. One is that I didn't have any in into this community. You know, no one in my family belongs in these circles. I come actually from a family tradition that for the most part is seen as counter-revolutionary in Iran. I'm an Iranian-American, right, which we know the state in Iran sees as potential spy. So there are all of these sort of different markers that made me stand out. So part of it was that it needed to be a slow process because I needed to build trust. In order to be able to do deep field work, I think, and you know, I didn't want to just do the interviews. I, I really wanted them that when they were in their production meetings talking about their budget for their next film or the decisions that they were making about how to edit a certain film, I wanted to be in those rooms. And so that required a level of relationship building that necessitated time because I didn't have networks already. But what that's also taught me is that when you slowly build trust with a community of folks over time, First of all, like the conversations or the interviews and things that I had and that I read in my first few notebooks, field notebooks, are so different from what ended up happening a few years later and like the conversations I would have with those same folks. And I remember when I was going through my field works, I thought, well, thank God I didn't stop then because I got to such a deeper place with these folks um, a few years into it. And also there was gender dynamics in place. I was dealing only with men. So talking to me about sort of issues that 
it might have been hard for them to do so without knowing me very closely. But also one of the other things I will say is that when I wrote my dissertation, I had one conclusion about like whether their strategies were working or not working. And then because I kept in touch with them, would see them again. Then when I was writing my book in one draft, I had another conclusion because then I thought, well, maybe it's, uh, it is actually working. And then it wasn't working. And so another thing is that because, I mean, humans are so complex, you know, things develop in such complex ways that for us to have such a definitive conclusion on things, even though sometimes our work necessitates it. I think this this ability that I was able to see, okay, I, oh yeah, I know for sure it just does not work. Their strategies don't work. And then to think, wow, on some levels it does work. And then, you know, and so this was, it was great. And then I, I finally decided in my conclusion, I'm going to write about that. And I'm going to write about how they don't know. And actually none of us know, you know, when we're talking about media and state strategies, no one knows for certain um, what ends up working and not and for what reasons. And actually, if we pay attention to what those who've studied advertising for so long are able to show us, of course, people don't know, right? So I actually, instead of letting that frustrate me, I tried to allow it to come into the work. Can I butt in with a follow-up before you ask Uh, your next question? In the course of your answer, which is so fascinating, it kind of reminded me that in many ways you grew up doing this project over a 10-year period of time. The people involved in your study, they also were getting older and you were all sort of aging across the life course together. And so I was hoping you could um, tell us a little bit, sort of probing on Amy's question. Did you see that actually play out in terms of like people getting older, moving through the life course, and that that changed their relationship to the revolution, to the production of these materials, if you have any reflections? Yeah. You know, one of the things I go through in the book is sort of generational differences. I'm sort of looking at the generational differences between the first generation, so those who are in power today in the Revolutionary Guard, and the the youngest generation in the best age of Revolutionary Guard. And I try to sort of understand revolutionary power and revolutionary states through this sort of how does it go from one generation to the next? So in answering your question, it's actually interesting because this sort of took some time to do, I was able to see how the third generation, those who are the youngest members of the Bastille that I was in touch with at the time, they, because of the ways in which Khamenei um, began to focus ideologically on the Bastille, they were much more in line with the Supreme Leader's sort of stance on things rather than the upper echelons of the Revolutionary Guard, which are not. And part of, of why that was, was because those who are older have children who, as I was saying before, come home and, and challenge their parents all the time. And so as I saw these youngest Bastige members also begin to have children. And so after I left Iran, when my field work was officially over and then went back again, and I, some of them had started to already have kids, I saw them begin to change their outlook on what the Islamic Republic should mean going forward. And when I would try to probe why, how had they changed and how they were thinking from like just two years ago, and oftentimes they would talk about, well, you know, I want my child to grow up in a stable country. And so it was about how did they now envision the future based on what kind of country did they want their children to grow up in? And that, because I was able to sort of know them through this time period, I think allowed me to see that. And then also another thing that I think was important is that talking about life changes and stuff, I was young when I started the research and then throughout the years eventually got married and got older and the relationship they also began to change with me and and it deepened in many ways you know especially because there was this gender 
component to it. So once I got married, they began to invite me more to their families' homes, which they hadn't done before I was married, things like that, that I think were also really interesting to see. So back to the ethnographic writing bit, uh, the second part of the question. So I really liked in your book how you introduce us to several key characters and trace it all the way through. So as a result, this is not a book where if you just assign one chapter, you get the full richness of these characters. It's not like a chapter about this guy and a chapter about that guy, right? You really draw the arc of the narrative all the way through in a really compelling way. And this is something that not all ethnographic writers have been able to achieve. So I'm curious about your writing process and the choice to write the text in a way that is so legible, but also informed by theory and ethnographic inquiry. And drawing that narrative all the way across the book? I mean, I really actually owe it to Kate Wall, the editor at Stanford, who I worked with, and also Shireen Hamdi and Negar Motahade, because they both, they knew that I liked to write, that I liked to write outside of the academy, but that in that writing, I want it to be informed by what I was learning. And so they really encouraged me and said, do it. It's okay. Because I had a lot of, and I, and I did up until the moments that the book came out, I had so many stress dreams about if I wrote it in this way as my first book, mm-hmm. would I even be taken seriously in the academy or not? They gave you permission. They gave me yeah. permission. And so I really do thank them for that. Because when I did write the academic manuscript, if I was happy with it, the research was there and all of that. But One of the things about writing about the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij and about Iran is that in academic language, we already have such a flattened vision of Iran that by writing in this way, I really wanted to bring the people that I had been working with for so long to life in the sense that I wanted people to see them as 3D and I wanted people to understand that there are parts of their stories that are important to them that we should understand. And there are parts that you may not like of what I heard and and what I'm sort of putting on the paper here. But if we can have a more complex sort of understanding of them, then perhaps we can begin to move forward from this very black and white picture that we have of Iran and the Islamic Republic after the revolution. Now, As far as how did I choose to write it, though, so I was very lucky in that part of my PhD training was also in filmmaking. And one of the things that three years at NYU Tisch School of Filmmaking taught me because they sort of hammered it into us is the importance of storyboarding. Mm -hmm. And so... I storyboarded this book. I mean, I literally sat down with index cards and storyboarded the whole thing because I thought about, okay, what is the book that I like to read? And I'm really into following characters. That's I, I really enjoy that. And so I spent a lot of time with a lot of different people in Iran and these organizations, but I was trying to think, okay, I want those different stories in there, but I don't want this to just be a whole blob of people to my readers. I want them to, to be able to sort of dig deep in certain people that I think could help sort of bring the broader picture out. And so I focused in on three characters that were very important to the research, but also then I hope I'm able to bring in other folks along the way. And that was really sort of how I went about it. We probably don't have too much time to get into the details, but could you briefly talk about one of these characters in your book? I mean, I'm sure that's a lot to ask at this moment, but just for our listeners to get a sense of the type of work you're doing throughout this book of showing the evolution of these people and their lives over 10 years. One of them is 
this man I call Mr. Hosseini, who's one of the main leading cultural producers in sort of the regime media world. And he comes from a, actually a middle-class family in Abadan prior to the war, but from a very pious family. And he always would tell me, and I could see through his actions, that because he grew up in a place with, with so many different people from all over the world because of the oil company there. He would tell me he would go to the cinema and Abadan all the time growing up. He read a ton of books from like literature of all these different places of the world. He says, I was coming home from school one day and the Iraqi bombs just started bombing Abadan. And so I had no choice. At 15, I had to take up arms because it was about protecting my family and my hometown. And so he ends up staying in the war all eight years, is wounded multiple times, and then eventually gets his PhD in the arts and eventually becomes a screenwriter and a film producer and filmmaker. And for him, what was really fascinating for me is, and one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is this so insider outsider, especially as it sort of framed within the Islamic Republic. And But Mr. Hosseini, because of how he had grown up, really was pushing the Revolutionary Guard to have a new form of media engagement that pushed past And that's because of having grown up in this very cosmopolitan place in, in Abadan from the background that he came from. So that's sort of one of the main characters throughout it. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your own maybe personal biography or intellectual biography and create some links for listeners between both the book, which has been out now for a little over a month, and the you know second and third projects that you have on the go. One of the ways I even got into this project is that I had been working on survivors of chemical warfare for some time. And I had been working on that issue for about four years prior to beginning the research for this Iran Reframed book. And honestly, I could have done my dissertation on that, except that it is such an emotionally difficult subject to work on because I interviewed a lot of survivors of chemical warfare in Iran, and they have really, I mean, they're really difficult stories. And so the thought of sitting with this project for 10 years, you know, like going through the PhD process and writing and then turning it into a book, I didn't have the ability to be able to do that because of how difficult these stories were. But as I was actually moving cities, I realized a year and a half ago, I realized that I have the tapes of all of these interviews that I did and they were sitting at the bottom of one of my bookshelves. And I thought to myself, this is a shame if I don't do anything with it. And I started to do some research and realized that there actually isn't much written about chemical warfare, not even just about the Iran-Iraq war, just in general. And so I now want to begin to turn these all of that work into a book, but also I want to expand it and do some ethnography if I can, or at least archival work on the uh, weapons manufacturers, uh, because profit is a really big part of this whole story. And then as well as the effects of these chemicals on the environment and sort of the after effects of this sort of warfare on generations that are being born today. And I'm going to include the Iraqi side of this as well. So that's sort of one project that I'm working on at the moment. And then the other project is that as I was doing, and especially as I was writing the Iran Reframed book, you know, I have been focused for so long on studying and uh, Iran and spending time in Iran and really trying to sort of understand post-revolutionary politics and society as much as I can through the lens that I had going in, that when I started to teach at a foreign policy school, I realized that I actually 
I don't know much about U.S. policy. Like I know about it in broad strokes, but I don't know about it in specifics of the way that I had been focusing on Iran for so long. And that as I was writing Iran Reframe, that's only one side of this whole equation about why we are in the mess that we are in today with Iran and the U.S. And so I thought to myself, okay, my next project is going to be turning this lens of looking at the intersections of power and media onto the U.S. and understanding how the U.S. framework of understanding Iran has been shaped and throughout these past 40 years. And so actually, my new project is looking at the creation of uh, Nightline and its coverage of the Iranian hostage crisis. But I'm not so much interested in the hostage crisis itself as I am in the ways in which coverage of the hostage crisis completely transformed American news television. And so I'm really much more interested in the creation of this new enemy and how it became the precursor to our 24-hour news cycle, to the creation of sort of how it seeped into popular culture and how it really laid the foundations for what would eventually become the ways in which we reacted to the global war on terror. So yeah, those are sort of the the other two projects. Nargis, I have to catch a flight. Yes. (laughs) So I I just have one more question and then we can wrap it up. If there was one thing that you would want your readers to take away from this book project, what would it be? I really want people to take away that our lens on Iran and the Islamic Republic, whether as Iranians of diaspora or as Americans or even as Iranians from within Iran, has we can widen our aperture a bit in order to understand what has happened in Iran since 1979 in a much more complex way. And the reason that I say that is that actually so many of the things that I talk about in the book are things that are amplified today because of the way in which power, this issue of who has uh, social and cultural capital in Iran, this issue of Khodi and Ghayr Khodi, outsider, insider, these are issues that are deeper even than the Islamic Republic. And so I think these are issues that we have to sort of, issues of belonging and who gets to decide who belongs and who doesn't. As we think about a transformative vision for politics and society of either Iran and or Iranians, I think these are issues that we really have to be paying attention to because otherwise we just end up recreating the same problems of power. So under the Pahlavi regime, there was a particular way in which insider-outsider was formulated. Under the Islamic Republic, the formulation of insider-outsider changes, but it's still sort of within the same sort of logics, the way in which our politics and diaspora functions also has another veneer, but the logic is the same. And so if we actually want to move past this kind of politics, we need to to understand these phenomena, I think. And and so that would be my wish for, for folks. Nargis, thank you so much. Thank you. Neda, Amy, thank you very much. Once again, for our listeners, that was Dr. Nargis Bajogli. She is the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic by Stanford University Press, 2019. I was also joined by the incredible Dr. Mapoulet at University of Toronto and Dr. Amy Malik at College of Charleston. So as always, if you'd like to participate in this conversation further, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we'll catch you there. Until next time. <laughs>